Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism Podcast. My name is Simon Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher and data editor at Google. And my name is Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, a graphics designer and journalist and also a book author. We love using data to tell stories, and the music you can hear is the sound of data. And this is the Data Journalism Podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, dissecting the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we explore the latest in data journalism, and we chat with some of the world's top data journalists. You'll get to find out how they do what they do. So subscribe at datajournalismpodcast.com to see how data is changing the world of journalism. Forever. Forever. Hey, Simon, how are you doing? Hey, good, Alberta. Thank you. Who do we have this week? We've got a great guest this week. It's the, the rather lovely Alan Smith, who is the head of the graphics team at the Financial Times. Fantastic guy. Also one of the loveliest people in, um, in data journalism, but terrifically talented. Used to uh, be at the ONS. And I can remember working with some of his projects at the ONS, where the team there... Really, they set up a proper visualization team inside this government, stuffy government statistics body and created some really interesting visuals. And then took that work to the FT where he runs a really interesting team, including people we know like John Burr Murdoch and Andy Lim and so on, who are just great uh, journalists. So it was, it was fascinating to talk to him about how his team works and how he pulls them all together. Yeah, it was a, it was an exciting conversation. I am also friends with Alan and um, and I got to meet the team when I visited London, uh, London years ago. And I, I'm a huge fan of the Financial Times uh, data team. So yeah, in our conversation, we, you, we talked about his work, we talked about his career. We also talked about the, the book that he published last year in 2022, How Charts Work, uh, which is based on his work for the Financial Times. So it was a very productive, very interesting conversation. Yeah, I think um, we learned a lot about how his team works, but also his approach to running data visualizations. He's in a newsroom and how, you know, the work that he's doing, he thinks very much, I think, about the theory of what he does and how, and how certain approaches work and how others won. And he's really interested in making just data accessible to as many people as possible. Yep. Data and graphics accessible to the general public. Yeah, it was super, super interesting conversation. So let's let's dive in. Let's dive in. 12, 12, 13, 13, 13, 13. I'm Alan Smith. I'm head of visual and data journalism at the Financial Times. Welcome, Alan. It's good to see you. I hope that you're doing well. I think that our first question will be, um, the Financial Times has had a you know huge visibility, I think, or the visibility of the graphics department has increased a lot during the the, the COVID pandemic, uh, thanks to the excellent work that, that you have put out. Maybe you can talk a little bit, sort of like in broad terms, about how the department is structured, how big it is, what types of backgrounds and profiles the people who work in your department, department have. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I think as with probably any news uh, organization as well, I can tell you what it's like now. It's probably different to what it was like a year ago or five years ago and what it's going to be in a year or so's time. But um, we are now um, a team of about 30, 35 people, predominantly located in London, but we have a, 
uh, a small but perfectly formed team in New York uh, and uh, a data journalism machine in Hong Kong called Andy Lin. Um, so we're, we're a group of uh, visual and data journalists. Um, if you like, the, the sort of genesis of that team is that it's a composite of, I suppose, slightly separate teams historically in newsroom terms. And, and you'll probably be well familiar with this, both of you, I suppose, that, you know, years ago that you used to have kind of teams in newsrooms organized almost by platform, you know, so you'd have your print graphics team and your online graphics team and then your interactive graphics team and, and so on. So um, a, a few years ago, we decided to kind of pull all of that together and say, look, this is crazy. Why not just organize this group based on what we do, which is visual and data journalism, and, and pull that uh, group of people together. And so that's what we've done. Um, in terms of composition, I mean, I, I'm so the team is great, partly because I think it's just this lovely mixture of a sort of veteran core of visual and data journalists who've been there for quite a while, along with a, a number of kind of recent hires that we've made that have really just, you, you, I mean, recruitment is such an imprecise art, isn't it? But like you kind of hope that your, your new hires will fuse perfectly with your existing team and, and kind of that, that works. And so that's where we're at right now. We actually have a really nice shape to the team, which is, which is uh, along those lines. And it is the classic interdisciplinary mix that you would expect in, in our part of the newsroom. So we've got people who've come through, you know, arts disciplines who are very talented illustrators and, and artists, people who've come from more computational backgrounds, uh, people who've come through fairly traditional reporting backgrounds, but have kind of built technology and data into their, in, into their way of working. Um, and that's what makes it such a great place to work because I, I think. With any team like this in a newsroom, there's so many skill sets involved these days that what you really want is a team that can do sort of greater than the sum of its parts journalism. And I, and I think that's where we're at right now. We've got we've got some some really great collaborations going on now. You mentioned um, people's backgrounds, and your own background is quite eclectic and a little bit unusual. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, it's, it is a very unusual uh, background because when people talk to me and they sort of say, oh, you know, what did you do before you uh, were at the FT? I think there's an assumption that I must have been some, well, firstly, uh, you know, people can tell I'm not young, right? Like I've been around for a while. And so people sort of say, well, what was your first job in the newsroom? And I say, well, it was in my mid forties for the FT, right? Like, uh, you know, that was my first job in the newsroom because before the FT, um, I'd spent the best part of two decades working at the UK's Office for National Statistics. And so in that respect, I mean, I think it's really interesting. We've been talking a lot about things like career development and to what extent people can map out career pathways in this sort of discipline recently. And I'm probably the unhelpful person that sort of says, you know, you don't have to necessarily have all this stuff mapped out in precise detail because sometimes things happen and opportunities unfold and, and things, you know, when I graduated, you know, the internet didn't even exist properly, right? So how could I have prepared for a career uh, of any sort, let alone one in journalism? So, um, but, but in terms of how did I end up going from a civil service organization to, um, you know, an international news organization, that actually is much more interesting, I think, in that uh, ONS I'd originally joined as a cartographic person. So I, I led the publication mapping team uh, at the ONS. Um, 
I did my master's there, which was at the time about kind of emerging web technology um, and, and how we could make best use of that at ONS. That included using things like this new format called SVG that had just appeared and uh, like, oh, we could link that to JavaScript and what could we do with it? Um, so at that time, we sort of did a proposal to say, well, look, this is not just about maps anymore. It's about how we present data on the internet. So we created a very small embryonic data visualization team that we gradually increased in size because we were starting to get very, very passionate at ONS about sort of sharing statistics with as wide an audience as possible, which I think is such a nice thing for an official uh, government uh, stats agency to do. Um, and at that time, I had to give them the sort of brutal truth, which was if you really want to connect with people, you're going to have to, you know, lose the statistics.gov URL to do it because that's two of people's least favorite words in a, in a URL. I said, you know, you know what we're really going to have to do is go and talk to the media. And that's Simon where we first started uh, exchanging uh, notes was where we sort of said, look, we're doing some really interesting stuff on visualization. Uh, we'd like to get it out as far and wide as possible. We started talking to media organizations who syndicated that stuff, which was great. So the Guardian, the BBC, uh, and other news orgs in the UK. And then gradually that put me into the sort of universe of talking to kindred spirits in newsrooms. And so I ended up joining the FT back in 2015 as its first ever data visualization editor. Um, yeah. You've always had, I think, an, an interest in sort of like spreading the word about uh, not only about data, but also about visualization as well. And you also have a side career as an, uh, we could call it an educator. I mean, can you talk, for, for example, a little bit about uh, the visual vocabulary, which is a resource that you put out uh, years ago? Um, and I believe that it's uh, super useful for practitioners of visualization design to make choices. It's one of the resources that I recommend to my students every semester to consult. Uh, to guide their choices in terms of like getting the best graphic form, depending on what the purpose of a visualization is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I am really interested in this because I think part of my own journey was that when I started off in cartography at uni, I mean, I did a, it was really interesting. I did a year in Colorado at uh, CU Boulder where as part of my courses, I did a module on cartography, which was all ink and vellum, kind of like manually drawing paper maps with uh, the legendary professor there called Ken Erickson. And then I did another module called Introduction to GIS, where they were sort of saying, hey, we can use computers to predict where floods are going to kind of raise and so on. Um, and so at that time, I started to think, you know, hey, I really love geography and I love cartography. And wouldn't it be great if one day that sort of world of the computational stuff got into cartography and we could do some cool stuff? The thing was at that time, even though the technology was emerging, there was a lot of literature that you could turn to about what makes a good map, right? Like there was lots of good books on cartography. I mean, starting with people like Bertin and others, you know, you could go into the cartography space and get lots of great books to sort of say, right, I'm going to learn how to make great thematic maps or whatever. My sort of worry when I sort of wrote this business case at ONS saying we should expand this to cover all forms of visualization was where the hell do we go to, to become familiar with that because at that time and we're talking early 2000s you obviously had 
Hafti's books sitting there pretty much in isolation. Um, you know, there were there was some, you know, Cleveland, McGill, um, some of the stuff that Jock McKinley had done. There were some things, but there weren't really things that at a practical level were going to really change the way that people were, were, were kind of executing the craft. And I ended up sort of thinking a lot about this. And I, I mean, you know, forgive me, Alberto, some of my initial blame was to academia and the kind of false distinction of arts and sciences sometimes was, was an issue. It's that basically we had a, I think a little bit of a gap where things like how to communicate data were just overlooked on academic curricula. So you had people. I, I could see it all the time in the recruitment I was doing at the ONS. You know, we would hire for research officers, senior research officers, whose very jobs depended on being able to sort of interpret and communicate data. And when you sort of said to them, right, you know, you've done all of your stats courses, right? What about data communication? Virtually no one had done anything like that uh, in, in, in academia. So, and I think it works two ways is that if you followed things like an arts discipline, it's pretty easy to go through your entire college life without having to use data at all, right? Like you can kind of avoid it. And if you do a more numerate subject, well, maybe you can kind of do stats or economics and, and you'll learn a little bit about data presentation there, but generally only to other experts. So there was like a communicating that wider stuff was missing. So that's a long way of saying for ages, I've thought we should find better ways of plugging that gap and, and kind of my, um, my own sort of efforts about that were um, how do we bring resources into organizations that allow them to do this stuff better and to kind of promote data literacy? Um, and, and I can talk about the visual vocab in a minute because that's something that's been very useful to help plug the gap. But a, a gap. If I, yeah, if I, may interrupt yeah. You, I, if I may interrupt you in there, I think that there is something so important. I guess that our, our, our audience is mostly made of uh, designers, data journalists, reporters, and we don't need to tell them about how important it is to try to communicate messages effectively. That's our business, right? Try to communicate with, with people. Uh, but as you're saying, I mean, so when you deal with other, other types of disciplines, other worlds, the worlds of economics, data science, statistics, communication is really not a discipline that is, um, taught seriously and broadly, right? There are many exceptions though. And I think that it, that it is that it is improving in, in in Miami, for example, at the university, we have um, we have a, a, a master's in data science, and uh, my class, which is unapologetically a journalism class, is part of the core of the data science program because it is data communication, it is data visualization. So things are changing, and some students are reluctant, right? Students who come from a background on the on, on STEM and on the hard sciences, sometimes a little bit reluctant about learning design or soft skills. And I'm using, you know, scare quotes in here, soft skills, because I don't think that they are really soft. Um, they're a little bit wary about it, but then they start seeing the value of it. And they see that both things are essentially related to each other, that stats are important. And if you truly, truly believe that your stats are important, you better make them look important to other people. You better communicate their importance to other people. You better persuade them somehow of that of that importance. I think that Simon wants to add to this as well, right? Simon? No, just I mean, what I find with so I I, I also teach um, at the Medill School in in San Francisco, and one of the things that I spend a ton of time on is really just 
explaining your data story to each to the team. So each day, either as a group that has to explain the story to people, and partly it's because, especially in, you know, and anybody who wants to work in a newsroom, if you can't explain and sell your story to a news editor, it's not going to get in. And there's a real lack of um, of education around that. I think just like the 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 necessary need to be able to explain a story in a way that's interesting to people and accessible even before you get down to visualizing it and doing all the stuff you're itching to do because that's that's what comes next. But are you are you like the gatekeeper uh, for your team? I mean, because I feel like you have a team of very strong personalities as we have some of the some people work, that, that work with you. Are, you know, they're incredible journalists and, and visualizers and so on. But so, so are you the first gatekeeper or do you have the role of then explaining and selling those stories kind of up the chain? How does it work? Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's a couple of couple of points uh, about both that question and 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 kind of Alberto's point previously. So I agree. I've seen a massive shift in the last few years in terms of what's coming out. Uh, in terms of how well prepared graduates are, particularly with technical skills relating to data journalism and, and data visualization, we can see that in the people that you know five ten years ago didn't have skills that you can now assume people will have now. Um, I think the sort of the sort of slightly the slight counter to that is in exactly the space that you talk about, Simon. Is that we've got people coming in technically very competent, but perhaps at the expense sometimes of being able to pitch that story idea to to another human and to and you know you know ignore all of the clever analysis. You know, so what? What's the story? What are people going to learn from this? That that sort of articulation of story is and so. Um, as far as how that works at the FT, I mean, the answer is we have all sorts of routes to commissioning content, but a couple of the most important ones are um, about 18 months ago, we created a mini team at the FT within my, my area called uh, the Visual Storytelling Team, led by Sam Joyner, and that is a self-contained team that uh, pitches and collaborates and executes its own project ideas. So. Um, this has been incredibly important for us in terms of changing the commissioning model for that type of content so that our visual and data team gets greater ownership. I think just going back to the old days, the old days, and Alberto will certainly be familiar with this, I suspect, is that you would have a graphics desk that was the last stop in the story process, right? Everything's been done. And then just before publication, let's just throw in a graphic to brighten it up. And in my book, I've got this example of the, what the, the kind of pretty famous now underpants example where at the FT there was a, a graphic done with some pie charts in an unfortunate position inside a pair of underpants. Um, and that came straight out of this space where designers effectively stopped designing because they were being told what to do by editors who didn't really know about the data that they were presenting. And, and so we've moved as far as we can, I think, away from that space at the FT now. So we're either collaborating with reporters early on in the process, or we're pitching and executing our own ideas as much as possible. And for us, that's a big shift. I think that you even have a term to refer to the graphic that that, that you just mentioned, the, the one with the underpants. I think that you call it in the book, the sticular chart. If I remember well, yeah, <laughs> I, I said it's it's the closest thing to uh, a pair of testicles that's ever appeared in an FT. Uh, it does look like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and and you can exactly see what's where that's coming from. And in, in fact, 
there are people in my team, because I, I talk about this veteran core, there are people in the team who worked on the desk at that time. And there was like a general assumption that that's the way that graphics were constructed. And it's that big difference between designing around data and designing with data. And I think the visual vocabulary is that bridge, right? That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to give designers and people who design with data some evidence to have those discussions about what best, what's the best way or what's an effective way of presenting data. And that's what for me was missing in places like newsrooms is that newsrooms would very often have style guides of, you know, this is the font you must use. These are the colors that you must use. Um, but there was no kind of appreciation for, you know, what we would recognize as a grammar to graphics. And that, that you know, that, that's just as right as, as the grammar of the written word. And, and so we've been trying to balance that up, I think, is the best way of putting it. We will, we will make sure to link to the visual vocabulary uh, so, so listeners can, can appreciate it and, and use it. Uh, you also mentioned your book. So why don't we talk a little bit about your, your book, How Chats Work? It was published in 2022, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was published last year. And it, to be honest, by the time it was published, uh, it, it's almost like a biography of the team just before and during the COVID pandemic, you know, the work of the team. And it, in some ways, you know, it takes as its core the visual vocabulary resource that we kind of brought into the newsroom. And it just expands on that resource in, in great detail. And I think the sort of the, the origins of the book as a project came from the fact that when we were making these early changes to the way that we did data visit the FT, we were, of course, concerned about how do we broadcast to the rest of the news organization that we're making these changes, right? Like, so how do you let the desks that have traditionally commissioned the underpants graphics know that you're changing strategy, right? Um, and we talked around lots of different ideas for doing that. Uh, one of them was like, you know, should we have an email newsletter that goes out? Should we do some sort of staff presentations and all that sort of stuff? And at the time, I thought, well, the currency in a newsroom is the article. Why don't we write some articles that sort of, in a very thinly veiled way, explain what we're doing? And if we aim it sort of notionally at readers, because we think readers would also be struggling with how to present data in their organizations. And the FT has a very good sort of work and careers desk where, you know, all sorts of things like how to make a public speech and, and like how to do things to kind of boost your own skill set. And it seemed like a natural thing. So let's write some articles about data visualization for our work and careers team. And, um, and in doing so, we'll also articulate to our, our own journalists, who are some of our most avid readers, right, about what we're doing. Um, over time, some of the titles of those pieces got a little, a little obvious. We were like, why we're not doing so many maps? <laughs> you know, why, do, why everything doesn't have to be interactive, you know, but, um, that series of articles, which we sort of badged up under this kind of chart doctor brand at the FT proved quite popular, both with readers and, and as a way of communicating that message. Um, and so, uh, Pearson approached me who run the FT's kind of FT publishing brand and said, could we build those columns out into something more complete? Um, and so it's really a story of how we've used the visual vocabulary to drive that change process for database at the FT, I think. And initially I thought, do I really need to write a book? Cause there's been so many great books recently about 
this topic. I mean, having books that I would have loved to have had when I was starting on that journey myself, 20s, you know, early career, um, being a biz person. But there's loads now. And and when I sat down and thought about it, I thought really the angle on it, I think, that I could do in the book that was slightly different to a lot of other books was to focus solely on how one organization had changed the way that it did it, right? Because rather than just pick examples from all over the place, wouldn't it be great to say, look, we're just going to focus on what we did to change things and how that affected what we published over the last three or four years. Um, and, and so that was the premise of the book, really. And I, and I think that there is value in that. So um, just to, to respond to what you were saying about your your questioning yourself, is there really a need for a book like this? There are so many introductions to data visualization. I think that the answer is that, yes, there is a need for, for books like these that not only take these um, you know, this view from nowhere approach to visualization. Here are the general rules to data visualization, but actually show you how that applies to the real world and how the experiences of people working in the newsroom inform the practice, how the practice inform their daily, their daily jobs and how those two things interact with each other. And what is the you know, the specific way that things are done in the Financial Times. I see it as sort of like an, an inspirational resource that people can take a look at and then borrow ideas from the Financial Times. If you like what we do, here's how we do it, and then borrow it from it if you if you want. I think that's a great educational experience. What do you think, Simon? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I, I wonder, I'm interested as somebody who, that's pretty much what I did with, with my book was to, to take the the way that we worked at the Guardian at, at that time and put it put it into into a book and, and and the idea that there's you know there's an issue with institutional memory in this field that we tend to just remember the thing that was last week and not happened before. I do wonder wonder though whether what you end up with and I with my thing about this is it's like a moment in time. So it's like it's it's of of its time and of its moment, but the field is just changing so fast. Like five years time, where we just going to be talking about AI and data journalism all the time, and and this will seem like kind of quaint, a quaint. But, ev- but ev- everything is a moment in time. Yeah, I mean, it's true, and it doesn't matter, does it? Even, really? even classics, even classics in the field, Tafti's books are are old, and they are they have been, you know, uh, I don't know. They, you read them today, and there are some things that are still useful and worth learning from them. They are classics, and the same can be said of, of other books. But any book is the product of its times. I mean, mm. a, modern, a modern classic, for example, my favorite book in the past 10 years about visualization is uh, Tamara Mansner's uh, book, uh, in which she sort of like summarizes research. And so it's a fantastic book. It's like the Bible of, of research-based, evidence-based data visualization. But... You know, she, I mean, she will keep updating it because obviously there's new research coming in all the time, mm-hmm. right? So the ideas that we put in our books are just the ideas that we have at that very moment. We are people and we, we interact with the practice and the practice evolves and we evolve. So there is no, there's no problem in my opinion to just write a book that is going to be, you know, um, perhaps a little bit dated a decade from now. That's part of life, I think. I mean, I, 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 I agree. I mean, I think. I mean, your point's a good one in the sense that I think what I tried to do as much as possible was to just remove any sense that there was like a, you know, I, I tried to de-emphasize these are the tools that you do this with or that we do this with. Because that's usually the first question we get asked when people sort of say, oh, you know, really love your graphics at the FT. What software did you use? 
And I feel like that's just such a shortcut of a question that bypasses mm-hmm. 95% of actually the most important part of, of the process. So we kind of wanted to de-emphasize that in, in, in the book. And I think to some extent that worked. And I think you're right. I think it's about capturing that moment in time. I mean, I, I really, one of the figures in the, in the book that I quote is the Pew, how many American adults can read a scatterplot research from a few years ago. And that figure's out of date now because I suspect people have, have tuned more into it. But in, in my kind of book, I really, I spend a bit of time showing this is what FT readers thought the first time they saw a chord diagram, right? Like, and for me, that's valuable knowledge right like it, it, it's interesting to record it for posterity of course things will change running forward um but as as with all of these things you know you can't control that rate of change and that rate of change at the moment is 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 massive um but i, I felt like especially with the pandemic having really brought graphics and data to the, the forefront of journalism it was a good time to to do that reflection yeah Definitely, and I think I feel like the pandemic, like you say, the the interest was there. People really wanted to understand what was going on. And you guys did an excellent job of that, just as an outlet. And, and, and you know, I've never seen a, a moment where so many people have been discussing charts like John's John Bern Murdoch's uh, the charts and the way that he used social media to kind of tell those stories as well. So you didn't have to be a F two E to to explore that. Do you think? That is still with us now, or is it fading out? But I know that the um, there was a survey by the uh, European Journalism Centre, which said that some the the COVID was the story that every data journalist was working on for, for two years. So how does that how does that impact us in the longer run? Do you think? Well, I mean, I think I think there's been a, definitely a boost to not just kind of chart literacy. But I think the sort of the I think a lot of news organizations realized that they had to start thinking about that form of journalism fairly differently. And, and I think one of the reasons, I mean, it's it's great that we get good feedback about our COVID coverage. Um, personally, I don't think it was an accident that it was good. Um, we had had, like I say, a lot of thinking and doing in the years before the pandemic, uh, changing the way that we were doing our data viz. People like John have been doing extraordinary stuff. Um you know, that just needed the right fuse to, to make it go mainstream. And so I think when the pandemic hit, we were actually in a pretty strong place to do a good job in terms of the data literacy of the team, the, the visualization skills. And I think some news organizations were caught on the hop a little bit, suddenly realizing that this is an area that maybe they hadn't, uh, you know, prioritized sufficiently. I think the really interesting thing is what happened to readers. Like Readers suddenly started like, you know, they wanted to bookmark the charts, not the words. And I think that's really interesting. If you looked at things like our Instagram feeds and people like John's Twitter feeds, that those were the bookmarks of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So, Alan, one of the things we've been doing with um, all of our guests is to uh, have a little pop quiz with a couple of questions about the field, um, which we, every time we do this, we say we're going to have to turn this into actual data too. So I'm going <laughs> to kick off with one of these, and Alberta, you can go next. But um, what is your favorite hack that you are too embarrassed to admit? My favorite hack that I'm too embarrassed to admit? Oh, that's a, that's a, a tough one. Um, SVG crowbar. Still, right, being able to quickly get SVGs out of, anything that I want is still uh, a useful 
uh, skill, the dark arts. Um, they, I think SVG, SVG Crowbar, that is awesome. It was first time. Yeah. What, what a great suggestion. Um, and I'll tell you why, actually. I can give you a very, when we were in the early days of doing kind of, at one point at the FTE, soon after I arrived, decided we're going to use D3 for everything, online, print, the whole lot, right? So we created some code that would do all of our graphics in different styles for online and print. Um, but central to it was just being able to get the SVGs for print off of a web browser. So yeah, SVG Probar, great. Awesome. That is a great choice. Okay, Alberto, you next. All right. I think that I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, pie charts or tree maps? <laughs> uh, do you know, there are some people who who, are, who who still take issue with me about the visual vocabulary uh, because it's got pie charts on it, right? And and they're sort of saying, Alan, you know this, you know this, you can't have that. And I said, well, look, you know, they have a, you know, they have a, a small and occasionally useful kind of use situation. Um, and so I we we do publish pie charts. Actually, what I'm more like is donut charts than pie charts because of um, the fact that you can explain the universe inside the donut space, which I think is quite a useful thing to do sometimes. And we know that people are going to still read them probably as effectively as if they were a full pie chart. Um, but tree maps, I love tree maps for a few reasons. I love the fact that they've gone relatively mainstream and you don't really need to explain to people how they read. I love the fact that they can take hierarchy properly. I love the fact that as space-filling algorithms, it means that they make best use of tiny mobile phone screens. So I think the sort of superpower is tree maps. But, you know, don't throw the pie chart out. Playfair would be very insulted if you thought we'd done that. Yeah, just don't put the pie chart on top of underpants. Like the financial definitely don't do that. Definitely, yeah, we don't, we do don't want to get haunted by Playfair's ghost. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Alan Smith, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fantastic, and uh, yeah, good luck with the book. Great, thank you both. Thanks for having me. Eighty-two, 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 eighty-three, 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 eighty-four, eighty-four. 